This is Science Modeling Talks, a podcast featuring top modeling instructors sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. Our guest for this episode has been teaching for 32 years at Ridley School District near Philadelphia. Yep, you heard me right, 32 years at the same school. Cool, huh? Ray was introduced to modeling instruction in 2004, and he's become very active with the AMTA, serving as an in-demand modeling instruction workshop leader. He's presently involved in developing an NGSS capstone biology course, which he hopes to introduce in modeling workshops soon. Hi, uh, I am Ray Hawanski, Director of Curricular Innovation from Ridley School District. After a long journey of looking for ways to improve science education at Ridley School District, I found a group of uh, like-minded science educators at ASU um, where I started my journey with AMTA. And since then, for the past 13 years, we've been working together to try to figure out ways to improve the science learning of our students. Tell me, Ray, how did your introduction to modeling change your approach to the classroom? So I kind of felt a, uh, an inner struggle before I, uh, you know, found the, uh, the modeling approach. It certainly resonated with me, and I felt like it kind of gave me permission with all the research behind the success of the modeling approach in de-emphasizing what I had to say and emphasizing more listening to students and starting our conversation from their level of understanding. It became much more important what the students were thinking, and we were able to find that out through what they said, through whiteboarding. It was actually built into the network of the classroom experience for students that they were constantly asked to share what they're thinking and being asked to explain why they're thinking that and to provide evidence for that. And that is just centered around what scientists should be doing. Uh, a lot of the work we do here at Ridley School District is we try to put students into authentic experiences, whether it's as a writer or whether it's a mathematician or a scientist um, or you know somebody that's studying social studies. And that just really resonated with me, the fact that students were constantly in this role as a scientist, of course, you know, kind of shrunken down to the the classroom environment. So to sum that up, really, you know, to to start as a a listener and to be more reacting to students um, to try to figure out whatever phenomenon they were trying to uh, describe or to explain. You know, I saw a quote in some things that you shared before in our pre-production prep for this interview. And you said, early in my career, I was told to have more information ready to present than the time that's available to present it in the classroom. I thought that was an interesting observation, and and, uh, that's what you were told early as probably a student. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of interesting because it was almost as if, like, overwhelm the students with information and just keep that information coming and don't give them a second to, uh, you know, to interrupt you. And if you just keep this stream of information coming at students, then all will be well in your classroom. That was, you know, kind of the way we, you know, I was trained uh, in the beginning. And that's the way I perceived what I was being told. And we've kind of, in modeling, we kind of flipped that on its head, you know. But I did find 
in my own experiences, even prior to modeling, I found it was really interesting when you kind of did listen to the students a little bit and you did consider the struggles that they were having as we went into trying to describe or explain some phenomenon. And again, modeling just provides a, a framework to do that in. It's a thoughtful instructional design that constantly elicits from students what they're thinking and uh, forcing them to try to provide some evidence for why they're thinking that. Uh, and ways, multiple ways to express that, whether it's you know in the diagrams or graphs or uh, equations or words, like there's multiple ways for them to express that. And there's constantly opportunities for them to share with their classmates uh, what their thinking is and the chance to refine that thinking and a chance to refine you know the model that they're building to uh, influence how they process you know the world that they're they're living in. And hopefully that's coming closer and closer to uh, a useful and real description of, of the world they live in. You know, that leads me to ask you about a quote I heard from you uh, that you made on Twitter. You said, effective teaching is as much about knowing your students as knowing your content. And see, I think that relates directly to what you were just talking about, but kind of push forward on that one a little bit. Yeah, so I think so far we've, we've kind of um, emphasized the content uh, end of things. But really underlying that is certainly the climate and culture, you know, that's set in the classroom. And a lot of that is uh, knowing the student. None of the other stuff happens in the classroom if the kids don't buy in to what's happening in that classroom. And they're, they're going to buy in. You know, the old expression is, you know, they're not going to care what you have to say until they know how much you care. Right? So... Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. And, and so setting that environment, and the only way you can do that is really truly to try to uh, know and understand the students that are in your classroom. And I think that the uh, design of, of modeling instruction just builds on that. You have to trust the students. And, and, it's, and it's been a long time belief of mine that, you know, we are learning beings. Like we, we just love to learn. And in a classroom, you're just trying to get students to learn a specific thing, right? And lead them in a specific direction. The real trick of uh, effective education is not so much deciding on what it is you want to teach and even like, uh, you know, that path of, of how you're going to get those last few points across. It's really trying to figure out what the student's really thinking. Where is the student and meet them there? Because, you know, your GPS isn't going to work if it doesn't have you pinged in the right spot. You know, it's not going to get you from where you are to where you need to be until it locates where you actually are. Yeah. Directions aren't any good if, if it's not, uh, you know, starting from where you actually sit. That's a great analogy. I like that. I know that you're a fan of physics first mm -hmm. or the sequencing of physics, chemistry, biology. And some people add on, you know, other sciences at the fourth year. Sure. Tell me about, like, why you made such an effort, because I know your school follows that sequencing. Why did you make that effort to make that happen? And, and then the second half is, do you think it's working? So, um, 
you know, we just kind of sat down and asked that question, you know, about, you know, why do we do things the way that we teach them? Why is the sequence, you know, the, tra the traditional uh, order of courses? And biology had been changing quite a bit, you know, in the last generation or so. So if you really stop and think about it, uh, it made perfect sense 40 years ago to teach biology to, you know, a ninth grader, uh, because you're mostly teaching about things that they could experience. Mm. And it was, you know, a lot of categorization and, you know, a lot of um, things that, that a ninth grader could concretely understand. That isn't the case anymore. You know, today, you know, if a student goes on and studies more biology, yeah, there could be some study of ecology and such, you know, some branches of biology like that. But even in those branches, there's always a connection back to what's happening at the molecular level. So, you know, I had read some research and saw that there was uh, a tremendous number of uh, concepts that biology today relies on chemistry for. Mm. You know, it's not fair. We thought it just wasn't fair to ask biology teachers to uh, try to teach both chemistry and biology and squeeze it all into one course. And that was really what we're doing. And, and kind of what happens is you get this really shorthand version of chemistry that is oversimplified and kind of leads students in a, uh, a direction that is hard for them to then build on. You really have to then, when, the, when they, they go and learn that chemistry again, they really have to kind of forget the, those first kind of in introductory models that were used, if you want to call them that, uh, or representations, and build again. I mean, energy is a great example. Uh, very common for a, um, a student to learn about energy falling out of the breaking of a phosphate bond on ATP like candy out of a pixie stick. <laughs> when in reality, energy is not stored in a bond, and it's really in the re rearrangement of the particles that, um, you know, if, there's, if it reaches a lower energy state in the rearrangement, it's, it's in the forming of bonds that uh, energy becomes available. So uh, that's, you know, that's just one example, but there's, there's lots of things happening and, and students are learning about in biology that they would be far better off if they had had chemistry first. Mm -hmm. And then the physics experience, uh, you can, you know, drop balls, you can roll cars across the floor, and you can then ask students to explain, like, what's happening there? And you can build their understanding on experiences that they have. And for, you know, a ninth grader, it makes a lot of sense because that they are concrete experiences. And then, you know, you can build equations and graphs and diagrams based on that experience. So you start there, then you get a little more abstract with the chemistry. But again, a lot of things that you can see the change occurring in front of you in the chemistry and you're kind of locked into that what's happening at the, you know, the, the micro level of the, of the molecules and the atoms. And we're trying to th then look and say, okay, well, what am I actually seeing happen in the physical world? And they can connect those two. Mm. You go to biology, now you're talking about a whole host of hierarchy of 
levels of um, looking at a phenomenon. So now you have to run the gambit from looking at things occurring at the molecular level all the way to uh, the biosphere. So you're saying, okay, now let's explain, let's talk, look at this system in terms of the chemical reactions that are happening. Let's look at what's happening on a cellular level, right? Let's look at what's happening on an organism level. What changes do we have? Mm. Oh, okay, now we might want to look at how those organisms are interacting. Oh, and by the way, those interactions of the organisms are affecting what's happening at the cellular level. And so all these things are connected. It's really complex. And to give them a fair starting point, yeah, we just felt like they should have some background in that molecular level to allow them to connect that to all those other levels of understanding. So are what kind of results, since you guys have shifted to the physics first, what kind of results are you seeing at your school? So it's a, a great question. We do have, um, you know, one of the the struggles that we, we recently have now is that, you know, with uh, state testing and, you know, the, the test is a rigorous test by giving it in junior year, there's a lot of pressure for them to, to do well in that first time they take it. So that's a, that's a little bit of a, a struggle for us. What we did see is uh, initially when we started this some years back with the restructuring, we saw a lot more students able to take AP courses. Mm. So that was that was a, a big um, change after this first occurred. Um, our struggle now is really figuring out the biology, and we're we're doing it. It's a, um, a very good course that that we want to make you know even better. But they're just it, this. It's not a course that you can just go out and say, oh, you know, here's at least a framework to start with. Having students in in high school that have had chemistry. Uh, you have to really rethink how that biology is taught and really make some some connections. So that's 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 kind of our journey right now. Um, fortunately, right now we're working with uh, Ingrid Waldron, a professor emeritus from University of Pennsylvania, has been a great resource. Um, she does have some really really thoughtful materials that we were basing our adjustments on. And uh, through a dialogue with her and Larry Dukerich, uh, Larry is doing a lot of work in taking that framework that Ingrid has developed and with a really deep understanding and explanation for these you know, different models in, in biology. And we're trying to ramp them up and say, okay, now how can we add on or how can we adjust this given that students have had chemistry prior to this? And even, you know, how can we emphasize students developing and deploying models as they go through and learn the, um, the biology? So very fortunate for us, Mark, is that in the next generation science standards is very consistent with what happens in modeling. So our state is going in the direction of using the NGSS. I uh, don't know exactly what the timeline is. We know it's happening and we know it's coming. So we're kind of feeling like we're out in front of that, you know, developing this course because that's what will drive things. So, you know, the standards, as we know, drive things. So uh, we're very cognizant right now aligning to our state standards, uh, but we also have to be ready as uh, our, our state adjusts or adapts or adopts, whichever they end up doing, the next generation science standards. 
it's kind of exciting time for the biology thing because it really hasn't been solidified in the modeling workshops as of yet. I know there's been some. Am I wrong here? Correct me if I'm there, wrong. I'm sure there's been there's been lots. Um, there are schools. There's you know schools out there uh, certainly doing and working on uh, the uh, biology you know, in a physics, uh, chemistry, biology sequence. In a modeling approach, it just, they just didn't fit like what we were emphasizing and doing and in, in, in our standards. So, yeah, we just kind of uh, had a different take on how we were going to go about that. Most of what's happening in the modeling biology, though most of it is a uh, biology-first course. Right. Uh, and that's a much different, much different approach than what we're taking. Sure. And... The other thing, and I'll say about all this, it takes years. Like you talk about David Hesnes and, and Malcolm Wells and those guys who, who did all that early work. It takes a long time. So anybody that, that, that makes contributions to uh, curriculum, especially high-quality curriculum, mm -hmm. like the modeling units, I just take my hat off to them. Like, it's a lot of work. And if you're out there trying to do it by yourself or you're, you're doing it with, you know, a couple other folks, it's really, really hard and it really takes a lot. And I have to say, like, I count myself so lucky knowing the folks that I, I, I've known, like, you know, have worked with uh, Brenda Royce and, and Larry Dukerich for years on modifying a few of the units and the chemistry mm -hmm. and it was it would take us years to, to modify and revise and to rewrite one unit sure uh you know we'd be doing it all over you know emails and skype and all that because you know uh brenda's in california and lara's in arizona and i'm over here in pennsylvania yeah. but it just takes so long to do this and now as you know we're trying to connect the way we teach the biology into the chemistry and the physics. Mm -hmm. And and I believe we're on our way there. And if I can, the, just the other thing I wanted to throw in there is about the community of folks that I work with here in our school district, because that is so important, like having that relationship. Like we just have a super group of teachers and administrators and support folks here, you know, to make an effort to bring in the highest quality of curricula and educational practices, uh, instructional methods that we can possibly find. So when the superintendent here sees something that makes sense, and even though it, it, it's an effort and, you know, we have to kind of figure out ways to do it, um, they figure it out. We figure out how to get the best materials that are out there. And it's not about publications. It's not about a program. It's about bringing in these practices, and it and it's usually comes down to people. You know, we look at what's successful. It's about people. The teachers that we have here, we just have a fantastic group of teachers, students, you know, parents. I mean, that, that network, that community are just willing to say, okay, what's best for our kids, and let's work hard, and let's make that happen for our kids to give them the best possible future. That's really what drives it. You know, the other stuff, the nuts and bolts and all that is great, but it's really about that vision of saying, okay, what experience can we give these, these students to challenge their thinking and to give, give them opportunities to really practice some problem solving and some effective communication skills and collaboration? How do we really challenge them to do that at a high, high level uh, and kind of leading them into a path of success somewhere? 
somewhere down the road. You said learning is accelerated when we collaborate. I want you to elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> elaborate, collaborate. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's social. It's one of the things that, that um, you know, modelers certainly believe and and um, I think across the board and uh, David certainly, David Heston certainly espoused that, that we are social beings. And like I said, I, I very much believe it's, it's innate in us to be having a desire to learn. And so it just makes sense that if you look back, like we certainly learn socially. If you were to think of it in terms of like a you know, crowdsourcing or, you know, on a bigger scale, or if you think of a computer with networks, right? So what's happened with the World Web, all those things, when you connect all this information, you do it somewhat systematically, then you can really ramp up, you know, the kind of information you can gather and what you can figure out from that. Uh, and I think it's the same thing in a social situation. So, when you get groups of folks together and they start collaborating uh, towards some goal, everybody brings a little different perspective. Everybody has ideas. And when the welfare of the group, and especially in this case of the students, is at the forefront, yeah, and that's what you're working towards, and that's what's driving everything, and you kind of get the egos out of the way, and you get, you know, nobody's worrying about credit or anything like that. You just say, what's the best thing to do here? And you sit down and you start kind of working through this. Things just kind of fall into place and become self-evident almost. Mm. And you just keep, that's what really, I think, energizes educators when you see, yeah, like it's sometimes measurable on an assessment, sometimes measurable on a test. But when you see the lights go on, you know, we all talk about that, but that's really, you can feel it in a classroom. When you see these kids working together and trying to figure out like they may or may not get to quote the answer, but you know that energy and you know that they're working hard towards it and you know that you can kind of help them polish it off at the end. But man, it's that, it's that energy, it's that light. Like when you look in that kid's eyes and you can see them really, those wheels turning and, you know, you see them working with, you know, their small little group trying to figure a problem out, working different angles and coming up with different theories and erasing things. Like that's, that's what makes it work. Like that's, I mean, we say this all the time. We can't even anticipate half the things that, you know, these students are going to be facing in their careers and their lifetimes. But what we do know is they're going to have, they're going to be facing problems and they're going to have to talk through it. They're going to have to collaborate. And they're going to have to figure out how to solve them. Yeah, exactly. And we can't solve it for them. What we can do is just keep energizing that, that thought process and energizing that, that desire, first of all, to communicate and to collaborate and then to, as they're doing that, then we can uh, kind of guide them along the way. You know, one, our district, um, really led by the superintendent, uh, very much focused on that experiential learning piece that you need to be in that experience to really appreciate and to really learn personally. So to try to layer something onto somebody that they can't relate to, really difficult, especially for, you know, a, a high school student. But once you get them involved and once they're participating, once they're, they're working in the, uh, in the classroom, then they're much more receptive to guidance, suggestions, to, to tweaking, you know, where they're going with this learning process. Well, your eyes lit up and you got excited when you started talking about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I hear many modelers talk about the fact that one of the dynamics that changes in the classroom is instead of an expert delivering information to a, an audience, 
you're involving all everybody in the room. And I think we all learn much more in a social setting when we feel connected. Yeah, like connected is is a great word for that. And you also find out how how really smart a lot of these kids are. You know, you're like, you know. <laughs> They really look at things in, in a different way. And uh, and how could you know that if they're sitting there passively absorbing information? How can you know that diamond in the rough, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you don't know. I also hear modelers, and I want to get your take on this, talking about even the modeling community through AMTA, how it has energized them to have collaboration and to be part of a tribe to have a sense of belonging to a group of like-minded people. You want to talk about that? You've been involved now for a while. Uh, I wanted to start at the beginning when I first started teaching. And, you know, I just was fortunate. I mean, I just came into just a great community here at Ridley. There was one assistant principal, his name was John Whippy, uh, and he and I had many conversations and started me off on on a really good path, I think. And one of the things he said to me was, Ray, just anything you do in these first couple of years, make sure you go in and see other teachers teach hmm. and see other classrooms and talk to them about what they're doing and why they're doing it and pick their brains. I was really happy now looking back that I listened to them. And we, ha- we, we just have some fantastic teachers here and a great community. And the more you talk to folks, it's just the more you learn and it really does empower you and give you this whole this whole set of tools that you can use as a teacher. And it really doesn't matter the discipline. Like that's kind of where I started. Like, you, you know, it almost doesn't matter the discipline. So fast forward, uh, working with a lot of fantastic folks here. Um, another one that, you know, was real influential to me was a gentleman by the name of Rich Clevenstein. you know, really supported my continuing education and thinking about, new ways of instructing and give me opportunities to develop some courses and, and some units. And that's all part of the development. And then you, you kind of land in the, in the modeling community. Like after the searching and you're kind of on your own, you're kind of working with your teachers here. And then in the modeling community, like the, so what I found is that network. So now you're linked in to researchers and you're linked into these folks that are at higher ed and an open dialogue with teachers in all different environments all over the country thinking the same way like how can i do this better you know there's some real limitations in the way i'm teaching and and how can we kind of uh restructure the classroom and make this a better experience for students i'll just give you a, a couple quick examples here so i was just talking to a group of our teachers this morning about this, sharing this. I said, I can't believe it was this long ago, but uh, quite a while ago, sitting there in a chemistry classroom, and a student raises his hand early in the class and says, uh, Mr. Watsky says, uh, you just draw a picture of the, the atom up on the board, and I thought that positive and negative things attracted. How come those electrons don't crash into the into the protons I'm like oh, we're not really ready to talk about that yet you know like, but i know that <laughs> but i do i know that and then he starts saying, well then these electrons are supposed to repelling each other how come they're all out there all kind of hanging out together and it kind of hit me that the structure of the class just wasn't conducive to being able to build a student understanding so that was a kind of an example where 
things I hadn't even thought of. So when you get into, um, you know, other folks that have kind of asked those same questions or maybe a little further along in their journey of trying to figure out new ways to approach instruction, instructional design, sequences of learning, you can really come up with some really, really cool ideas and really make some progress in addressing some of the students' hurdles and misconceptions. So that's just kind of like one little example of the kind of thing you run into and you just have this light bulb. You're like, I I really don't know what I can do about this. It was so troubling to me, but I felt really frustrated. And then you become connected with, like I was saying, like this, this network of researchers and higher ed and these all the other teachers, you know, trying all these different approaches and it kind of falls out like what you should be doing. It's, if, if everyone's open to it, you kind of see, oh, this is, this is the path. And then you start, you know, measuring and tracking your results. And, and uh, so far, you know, there's been lots of positive data, you know, linked to the uh, modeling instruction. Uh, so that's part of the answer. But then, then there's actually the people. So, and again, I want to build like so fortunate, you know, like with the people that I work here, uh, work with here at Ridley, it's just we have a really good uh, group of folks and kind of point it all towards, you know, the common goal of trying to figure out, you know, how do we provide a good solid learning environment for kids and how we get them ready for the future. But then, man, that just like blows up exponentially when you go out and you network in with all these other folks that are also doing the same thing, hmm. you know, and they're also on the same journey from different perspectives and in different situations with a different knowledge uh, background and sometimes different roles. And, and, you, and you start having these conversations and that synergy just keeps building. And, and yeah, you know, what, what Heston started, what some, I guess, 40 years ago and is thinking about modeling at the philosophical level, hmm. um, and you just continue to grow into that framework of what can you do when you really work with open-minded, caring people um, towards the goal of helping students, you know, learn science better. So that's, yeah. that, you know, that it's, wow. it's, uh, it, it kind of makes it all worthwhile, you know, all the, all the late nights and the early mornings, <laughs> depending on time zones and all that of folks you're working with. Yeah. And well, then there's the personal end. So you get to then really know all these other folks at a personal level. And that's really important too, you know, because you see and, and just know them as individuals and that so many people are overcoming so much and will make so much, so many sacrifices, you know, in the name of, of figuring out better ways to educate and, and further, further kids. It's, it really does kind of strike you when you see what people are out there doing and uh, just figuring out a better way to do this and for no, really no other reason than, than for the kids. Listening to this podcast, we will have a lot of different people at different stages in their modeling experience. And, and then we will even have some, probably some brand new people who are just learning about this that'll hear this podcast. So I have two questions. One, what would you say to encourage those to keep on that have been involved? And what would you say to those who are investigating the curious right now? Wow. What a great question. So those of us that have been around it for, for a while and looking at the modeling, um, I guess I would say like it's more than the models. 
right? It's this, it's the network. It's, it's that synergy that we all have from working together. Um, I would say, appreciate those that, you know, you're working with and around and stay open to the fact that our model still needs refinement. We still need to, uh, develop and deploy more models and there there's things that we can't even anticipate the work yet to be done but opportunities will certainly uh, open to us if we're open to those opportunities so new modelers if i was just coming into modeling i guess some of it would be the same that it's more than than the nuts and bolts of developing and deploying models uh, that's part of it. But it really is, in the larger sense, an accumulation of some of the best evidence-based practices that can be found. I mean, in a way, I do understand why it's called the American Modeling Teachers Association. I get why we call it modelers. But I do sometimes, in a quiet moment, sitting and thinking about it, you know, I do wonder, you know, it's a lot more than just modeling. It certainly is modeling. It certainly is models. But there's a lot more to it than that. And I just hope that that word doesn't um, confine folks thinking to just being about models and modeling. Hmm. You know, it is about a lot more practices. There's a lot that goes into setting up that experience the students will have as they build their models and as they deploy their models that the teacher has to do to kind of make all that happen. And, and a lot that happens as a result of that. So just realize that, it, that in your journey, you know, a lot of it is about that network, about the people that you're with. And then there's the contribution piece. You know, like, it's hard. It's, man, I was so intimidated by some of the folks. And still to this day, sometimes I get on a, a, an email chain or I'm looking at things and I think to myself, wow, like this person really knows their stuff. And who am I, you know, to bring up my questions, you know? It's kind of humbling. But yet, that's one of the really cool things about the modeling community is it's okay. Like that's where you're thinking. That's where your understanding is. And just be courageous enough to put that out there. And man, like it'll just take off from there. You'll just start breaking down barriers and things that, you just kind of accept limitations and kind of uh, what you can and can't do either personally or professionally. And um, I can tell you a lot of those barriers have been smashed. And, and again, you know, I will say part of it from support here in my district by just a great community uh, and also by the modeling community, if we're just open to, you know, doing the work and, and try to figure things out together, that you can do things that you didn't think were going to be possible. You know, Ray, you said it's humbling, and I appreciate that. I think that's part of what I see in the character of many of the modelers that I've been talking to through this podcast. But many of them feel the same way, appreciative about you. Your name has come up quite often with some really brilliant people. <laughs> I love what you said about the the name of modeling instruction, modeling methodology, that it doesn't get too narrowly defined because the learning environment, everyone that I've talked to in the modeling community has talked about exactly that in different words, but you've put it very succinctly. The kind of learning environment that you create through 
modeling instruction approaches. Those become methodologies that you use, but that's the hub around which you build something else, something bigger than just a modeling technique. Yeah. As as lots of folks in the model would tell you, like all models have their limitations, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is a case of that, right? So we think in terms of, you know, the interaction of the teachers or the students in terms of a classroom interaction, or we think of them in terms of, you know, professional development experience. But the reality, actually what's happening there is more than that model of just professional interaction or classroom interaction. Actually, what's happening is more than that. That's all we're just focused on in that case. And fortunately, I think a lot of good things come from what we hadn't even considered in our model. So maybe we need to, uh, you know, kind of incorporate some new and different characteristics or look at it, you know, a little differently. I'm so grateful for everyone that, you know, I've gotten to work with over the years, certainly locally here and then um, also in the modeling community. And that journey obviously started with, you know, the first workshops that I took as a a learner. And that experience of refresh and a relook at what you set out to do as an educator Mm -hmm. is so powerful. And and that just kind of reignited that curiosity in me. Um, Something I haven't mentioned, I probably should. Like, I started out as a philosophy major back in the day. Wow. So epistemology, trying to figure out like how we learn things has always been, you know, something that was is, is high up on my list of things to So you know you know the the joke Steve Martin says about philosophers. Do you hear that joke? No. You know, you go to college, you take a major, and most people take their major and then they forget ninety percent of what they learned and then they go on and live their life. He said philosophers remember just enough to screw them up for the rest of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We won't make any jokes about chemistry teachers. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not the forum for that. <laughs> um so so yeah, so you go on and and you know after taking a workshop and you have that learning experience as a teacher and then it just reignites that curiosity of, man, like, like, how did I learn this? And, you know, how have we figured this out? And how are we at this state of our understanding of the physical world, whether it's physics, chemistry, biology, environmental science, astronomy, whatever. And you start thinking about, you know, what can we do to kind of move that learning forward? What can we do to accelerate that learning and figuring out how to make the best of our situation in terms of the educational uh, organizations that we have and in terms of what we know and don't know about, again, those disciplines, physics, chemistry, biology, et cetera. Uh, So then when you start connecting with other folks that have really innovative and thoughtful ideas about how we can rethink providing those learning environments for students and kind of breaking those barriers that are sometimes uh, somewhat confining, giving students an opportunity to really explore and, and express their thinking about what to look at and setting a, a solid foundation so students don't have, so they have a clearer path mm. to get to a deeper understanding, you know, um, so to remove some of the obstacles that we've sometimes placed in their way in terms of getting to deeper investigations of, of the physical world. 
and and a lot of that is trust. You know, so it's trusting that students will, in fact, fill in the gaps and they will figure things out. That it's not about us giving them all the answers, as we had kind of talked about earlier, but rather opening that learning experience up to learning about where they are, and then giving them some foundational experiences and some tools to talk about their thinking of some of these foundational experiences to then move our total understanding of the scientific community forward. These are the folks that are going to be figuring out the problems of tomorrow. And what our job, we would see it as, as laying that foundation, helping them build mo- useful models right that they can then go on and continue to refine and and use as they see fit in different situations but not to limit their understanding to what we think that they can learn uh, not to limit them to what we think they should know but rather to say here's this physical event here's what happened now let's build that understanding and help you understand your thinking process as well, help you reflect on the tools that you're using and the the concepts that you're building on so that you can then manipulate that as you see fit and as the situation calls for in your future. That's what we want students doing. Yep. So you've been sharing, I think, a lot of very important information. I want you to speak directly to those who are in the the process of exploring modeling as an encouragement. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's taken a lot of really thoughtful, hardworking people to put together some coherent sequences of model development and model deployment and even some integration between the, the courses. Man, you can really build on that. And it's a really good structure to come into, and you you can have some really impactful contributions. And it it can really reset your ability to provide useful learning experiences for students. Those two things combined make a really rewarding career. So if, if you're able to provide to students these experiences where they're de- building and deploying models and really problem solving and communicating and collaborating as they do it, and at the same time have this network and conversation with, with this network of uh, professionals that are also trying to figure out how to design and manage a learning environment where students are doing this, it really is is rewarding. It really does kind of shift away from a job to a career to you know almost a you know a, a you know your life's passion. So, and that that's really where where it can take you. And and the other thing is there's no pressure. Like you know you you come in and and you say you use you know the modeling community as you. But you kind of do. You like you kind of come in as you see fit. Like there's no expectations, no pressure. There's people thinking, I think, really hard and doing some some really interesting work about how we can improve things for scientific learning. But you might find this useful, and you might want to, you know, contribute a little. You might contribute a lot, and you don't know what those contributions can be until you really get involved. So I think it's worth an exploration for sure. 
And for many of us, it's been real impactful for our, our careers as, uh, as educators. Wow. Well, Ray, man, you've talked about a lot of really great stuff. We talked about physics first and how it's evolving. And we've talked about integrating biology modeling processes in the workshops and all that kind of stuff. We've talked about the NGSS stuff. You know, it's been really great. But I've heard a thread through your entire time about community. Yeah. And the importance of creating a sense of community in the classroom and the developing community of modelers. And here at the end, I heard you encouraging people to become engaged. Uh And I think that's a very powerful thing. If we just sit back and watch and think we're going to implement on our own, it's not the same. We don't have the same benefit. And the community doesn't have the same benefit as when each person adds their voice to the dialogue and the conversation. So thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to us. And I just wish you the very best of luck in your career and the work you're doing with innovation and and curriculum. We didn't even talk about that, really. Maybe another time we can have you come back and we'll talk about some of that stuff, too. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Mark, it was great talking to you. No, thank you. I really appreciated your uh, your patience with me and your uh, guiding me through my, my thought processes. So I just, I'll just say this one thing to you, Mark. Larry would often say about me, you know, when we, we got talking, he's like, Ray, you remind me of a locomotive. He's like, you're so slow to get going, but man, once you get going, there's no stopping you. <laughs> I was thinking that exact thing, man, once we got going, you were just on a, a fast track. It was awesome. <laughs> so anyway, uh, again, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. And tell Brenda I said hello, please. I will do. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and type our guest name in the search box. The episode page will pop right up. There you'll find any extra content that was mentioned during this interview. So until next time, keep striving for excellence in the classroom.